welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Sam, and with me is my co-host, Tessa. It's Oscar season! Today is a very special day, and it is special because joining us are two friends of the pod, not just one, but two, Megan and Jack. Hello. 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 Tessa and I are finally doing what we've been threatening to do since we started this podcast, which is cover the Academy Awards. In doing so, we've come dangerously close to our goal of watching every one of this year's nominees. Over the next two weeks, the four of us will be talking about all of the major long-form categories and their nominees, starting today with Best Picture and Best Director. Next week, we'll talk about all the other categories and the nominated films that we haven't talked about today. But first, let's talk about why award season is the most wonderful time of the year. For all who celebrate. <laughs> For all who celebrate. Yes. The Academy Awards, of course, is back before streaming when broadcast television used to matter. Uh, the Academy Awards is the second largest ratings extravaganza of the year, second only to the Super Bowl, which caused it to, unfortunately, for a while there, have the nickname the Super Bowl for women. Oh. <laughs> Ew. Gross. I had I no know. idea that was a it's thing. It's gross. That's, that's the whole thing. Am I correct that you are both, what is it, independent Spirit Award members? Is that right? Yes, I am. I, I'll, I'll defer to Jack to talk a little more uh, niche about the process, but I, I've been a member a few years now, uh, which is nice because we get screeners right around the holiday season. So um, a lot of the more popular independent movies you get a chance to watch and hopefully uh, share with your family around that time. Yeah, so I joined in fall of 2019 and like Megan have appreciated the perks of being able to take advantage of the screeners and see a lot of movies that aren't as accessible in theaters around me or just haven't didn't get the time to see them. So I definitely recommend it. It's um, been probably actually cheaper for all the movies I get to see than going to the theaters to see them, so. And we're also going to definitely be talking about accessibility today with one of the non-indie films, actually. But we'll get to that later. Jack, I think, uh, I don't, actually, I don't know. We'll find out here in a minute. But I think you might watch the most movies of the four of us. My wife would probably agree with you. What, what's, the, <laughs> what's the count up to this year so far? I think 90. Wow. Wow. What was it last year? Uh, Do you remember? I think it was... I think 400 or something. That's crazy. What about you, Megan? Do you know what your letterbox stats are? Uh, But I I, I think (laughs) last year, I think it was around 250. Uh, So, I mean, uh, a a good amount. Too much for, you know, a a stable person. I'm sure Jack would agree. But uh, (laughs) definitely not. uh, Definitely not 400. (laughs) So... Jack, in your in your 400 movie Odyssey last year, I know, of course, you were you were keeping up with award season last year just as much this year. Why, in brief, according to you, why are awards important? Why do they matter? They are silly, but they also 
are able to help people get new opportunities because they can say they won an Academy Award. Um, there are definitely short film directors um, that have risen from shorts to major role uh, films. It just is a good chance to get a lot of eyeballs and people that uh, get presented either new roles or new uh, directing opportunities. I'm looking at some of the nominees for this year and a lot of them are kind of smaller directors that probably at one point won some kind of award and that set them on their path to where they are now. Tick, Tick, Boom is directed by a first-time filmmaker. And that's one of, it got its lead actor in Academy Award nomination. So, Yeah. Megan, what do you like so much about award season? Oh, I, I, I mean, uh, everything Jack said, but also the drama, obviously. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I think I, I really just like following, you know, the... I mean, everything that has kind of an, an Oscar arc, um, you know, starting, you know, whether it's playing in festivals, you know, early the year before or, you know, kind of like the TIFF fall schedule, just hearing like everyone's reactions as they come out and then forming your own opinions, uh, inevitably disagreeing with the Academy on way too many things. Uh, and then like the week before the Oscars be like, oh, I'm ready for this season to be over. But then the second I'm sitting watching the Oscars, uh, you know, the drama just pulls me back in. Um, I mean, I also think, uh, you know, especially in recent years, I feel it's been really good about getting attention on some movies that, uh, you know, people like I my parents probably wouldn't see. You know, I mean, my parents are like, oh, we saw Drive My Cars on HBO Max. Should we be watching Drive My Car? And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Uh Yes, but crazy that you would ask. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know, I there there have been a lot of excellent movies that I think, you know, I, I think as people who watch a lot of movies, I don't know if the Oscars makes a difference in, you know, the films that we all watch. But for casual moviegoers, I think they can, you know, because, you know, something like Belfast, I guess, uh, just because I'm looking at the spreadsheet and that's the first thing I'm saying. My like my mom would have seen no matter what, but uh, she she definitely wouldn't have made time for, uh, you know, Power of the Dog, if not for this, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, I appreciate as much as I am team no list, I also really appreciate that the Oscars gives like a structure to some mm. of the prestige film that I know that I'm going to watch, right? Because there's just so many films. It's like drinking right. out of a fire hose at this point. You can't see everything <laughs> unless you're Jack, then maybe you can see everything. But I, you know, it's just nice to be like, okay, like, I'm going to watch all of the best picture nominees this year, or I'm going to watch all of this category. You know, it's, it's cool to be able to engage in some of the conversations that at least Hollywood thinks is important, whether or not that's indicative of an actual important conversation or not. seems like that's right. maybe a different conversation, but I, I like the checking things off of a list aspect of it. And as I well. think, you know, there are some, uh, you know, subsections of the Academy that are better at making stranger choices than others, maybe. So, you know, one that I always tell a lot of people to kind of pay attention to the past couple of years are screenplay, because uh, there tends to be things that slip into original and adapted screenplay that I think might not get as much attention elsewhere that I always find really interesting. Just remember, everybody out there, if Matt Damon and Ben Affleck can win an Oscar for writing, <laughs> so can you. 
<laughs> Probably not though. So let's let's just uh, let's get started then. Let's talk about in alphabetical order the first movie on our list today, Belfast. Belfast, a coming of age drama set during the Troubles in Belfast. Everyone's favorite insufferable bore, Kenneth Branagh, documents the struggles of a Protestant family living in Northern Ireland. <laughs> you really can't. I really can't. Yeah. I'll get there. Uh, living in Northern Ireland. Stars Katriana Balfi and Jamie Dornan. If you think this movie is anything like Outlander or Game of Thrones, it is not. Can I say props on you? Can't pronounce Ireland, can pronounce Katriana Balfi. <laughs> <laughs> We, we may have practiced a few yeah. of them earlier. I'm not going to lie. So this, this movie, in addition to being nominated for Best Picture, Kenneth Branagh is nominated for Director, as well as for his original screenplay. Uh, Ciaran Hines is nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Judy Dench is nominated for Best Supporting Actress. COVID All-Star Van Morrison is nominated for his song, Down to Joy, and Sound is also nominated. Megan, let's start with you. What did you think about Belfast? I liked Belfast. Um, I think I I don't think I adored it as much as the Academy seemed to, given all the nominations. Um, Belfast falls into what I tend to end up being like, oh, this is like one of the safer choices, you know, like this is like a time in history that people know about, but they aren't most probably aren't as aware of like nitty gritty details. Um, it is someone who is, you know, <laughs> respected in Hollywood. Kenneth Branagh uh, is definitely, uh, you know, can be hamming it up as <laughs> Hercule Poirot. But, uh, you know, he has a long history in Hollywood. So obviously he has some popularity there, you know, pulling from his true story, having such a strong cast. I I liked it. I don't think I loved it. But, uh, you know, by no means do I resent its placement on the list. Uh, we, we, will, we will come to some that I disagree with more strongly than Belfast. But it's definitely not in my top three. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really interesting. This is my, probably my bottom mm. pick. Like, it is the one I liked the least. I, th I agree with everything you said. But it is to me, if, if there are any onerous choices this year, this would be it for me. So, Jack, what did you think about Belfast? I thought it was good. I preferred the first version of this a couple of years ago when it was called Roma. Uh, that, <laughs> well done. That was my personal taste. I mean, I definitely really like the performance. Um, as many people have said, it's pretty ballsy of Kenneth Branagh to cast the hottest parents alive as his parents. And. <laughs> 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 um, would be very interested to know what they thought of that if they're still around. Did you know the fun fact that Kenneth Branagh has been nominated now in seven different categories hmm. in his career? Did not. I did not know that actually. What's wow. it called if you get nominated in all the Oscar categories? Like I know you've being heard of Kenneth Egon Branagh. being Kenneth yeah. Branagh. Branagh. He's, nominated. he's a producer. He's a producer. He's a director. Now he has done both screenplays. He's done lead acting and supporting acting, and I think a short. Wow. Yeah. That's... But I liked it. It was a like good movie. I think it will introduce some people to the troubles, probably, um, which yeah. is an important thing that people weren't, should learn about. I thought it was shot well. Definitely enjoyed the 
performances. I think the Wong two actors got nominated if they were going to nominate for this movie. Mm -hmm. That was something that definitely came up when we watched the film. It's like, did you nominate Judy Dench because she was in a movie? I think they were like, we like this movie. Oh, and look, Judy Dench. (laughs) She has won for being in a movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah, She wasn't just nominated. She won for being in a movie for like five minutes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think that this has happened twice this year, and we're going to talk about this more next week when we talk about being the Ricardos, which I think also has a actor who is generally very good mm. nominated for a role that I doesn't seem that special for him. About that. <laughs> but yeah, Judy Dench is fine. Like, there's, I mean, she's always fine. There's nothing ever wrong with Judy Dench. But I am very, I was very shocked that she was nominated and not. Catriona Balfe, who is really good in this. Like, I think her performance is probably the highlight of this film, especially playing as she does a mom who is raising two children on her own during the Troubles. There's a lot of complexity to her performance. I do find it deeply, deeply ironic. I did not know that she was Irish before this movie. And I actually looked it up in the first like five minutes of this movie. I'm like, is she Irish? She is an Irish person who most famously, her most famous role is playing an English person in Scotland. (laughs) I find that to be very, very funny. But yeah, I think the acting is pretty good in this. Kieran Hines, always good in everything that he's in. It's got great child acting, which is not always my favorite, but these children manage to be deeply funny in this movie in a way that I don't think we get to see a lot. But like you said, Megan, it's fine. This is what I like to call the obligatory period piece (laughs) that always has to be in the best pictures. But I do appreciate it that it's not about World War II, which has been my complaint in the past is that the period piece always has to do with World War II. At least this is about a different war, a different time period. I, I, I mean, again, it depends on how well the movies are made, but I still prefer something like this that's kind of like the story of one family during a time as opposed to like the third variation of some biopic that we've all seen before (laughs) right like that year that dunkirk and the churchill movie got the darkest hour hour, which was the same event from like two different yes correct perspectives (laughs) we did good that year so okay a statement about belfast true or false Belfast is a movie that will not win Best Picture, nor will Kenneth Branagh win Best Director, but there's a very good chance one of the down-ballot nominations will walk away with an award. I will say I don't think it won't win Best Picture. I It's it's not the one that I anticipate, but I don't think it's out of the question. Okay. Because, I mean, the way that they do the preferential ballot, I could see a lot of older Academy members, uh, more established Hollywood people being like, okay, this might not be my favorite movie, but I'd put this at three or four. And depending on how far down the list we get, uh, depending on how split everyone's opinions are this year, could make things interesting. I agree with that. I would say if it's going to win anything, I think it would be best picture. I think the other categories, it's. I don't think he's going to win director. I don't think it will win original screenplay. So I definitely think if it wins anything, it's going to be best picture. You know, we haven't talked about the sound of this movie at all, which is the other category that it's nominated for. I don't think it's going to win sound, but I do want to say the sound in this movie is excellent. Like I was actually really impressed with the use of sound in this movie. But yeah, I, I agree. I don't, 
like Megan said, I don't want to completely discount it from the best picture race because it is such a safe bet. But I do think there are things on the best picture list that will be more attractive to I even think there are better, like, you know, no one has issues with this movie movies on the list. So I I would think it wouldn't. But again, you never know. (laughs) Well, and I wonder, too, you, you mentioned the preferential ballot and the way things are done. It's the Hollywood version of Inside Baseball. Uh, you know, talking about how these things happen. But we're also dealing with the fact that, like it or not, 10 movies got nominated, which I thought was always the the foolish hat on a foolish hat. You know, the Academy is so good at making just bad decisions. We're going to nominate 10 movies, except for all the years we don't, because we don't have to. That just, I understand why, but it's just, it makes no sense to me. So I'm really glad they nominated 10 movies. But it's interesting thinking about how that could kind of wreak some havoc on the preferential ballot thing. But I think one of the good things that it does is, especially back in the five Oscar-nominated movie days, explain to me how a best picture can win, but the director can't. I always had a problem with that. But I think today I'm, I'm actually fine with it now, now that we've got twice as many best picture nominees as we do director, it... it makes an actual argument for why a film can win not because of its director and not even in spite of it, just because of other things. Yeah. Yeah. And there are some films on this list that we're going to talk about that don't have a best director nom, but also were only nominated for one other category, which I think is really interesting. So we'll talk about that as we get to these films. I tend to find that people vote for director with their mind and picture with their heart, you know, like you can watch a movie and be like, this is very impressively done, very well directed. I can see voting for X director for that. And then when it comes to best picture, you're looking at a list of 10 and you're like, you know what, I'm just going to ride or die for, you know, the one that I love. (laughs) Moving on to our second film, Coda, Child of Deaf Adults. Ruby Rossi, played by Amelia Jones, struggles with the constraints of being the only hearing member of a deaf family. She has to balance her family's fishing business against her own budding musical talent. Also stars the wonderful, stupendous, vivacious, talented, joy to have on your screen, perhaps the best remaining part of the West Wing, just all around great person, Marley Matlin. Are all Gen Xers obsessed with Marley Matlin? I wouldn't know I'm young. (laughs) Good chance. (laughs) (laughs) This one is also nominated for adapted screenplay by uh, Sean Hader. Not nominated for director. So this is an example of a film, best picture, but not best director. Um, But did get the nomination for adapted screenplay. And then Troy Coster, who's won at several other uh, award ceremonies, is nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Jack, what did you think about CODA? So I saw this originally at Sundance 2021, and it was my favorite film that I saw at that Sundance. I really liked it. I rewatched it when it came to Apple Plus, and I thought it was very heartwarming. It obviously is not an original story since it's an adapted screenplay, but I thought it was told well. The characters got to be full humans compared to other movies that would 
touch on a similar topic where they're kind of the stereotype with the you get to see the parents be true parents in all their embarrassing ways to their daughter much to her chagrin mm-hmm. i thought um <laughs> there are definitely parts of the issue of the movie that have some issues but for the, like overall i thought it was a really great story i thought the singing was very authentic and it was also nice to be in a movie where you can tell they really shot on location. I My prediction is that Troy is going to win Best Supporting Actor. Is this a better movie? Because you mentioned it does have some problematic places. But is this a better movie than Sound of Metal? They're kind of different. I appreciate the... I think that movie maybe had more issues, but um, it was also telling a kind of more unique story where someone wanting to adapt to life with a disability. And I thought that for that kind of story, did a pretty good job of someone who whole career depended on hearing. And then to base, cause it wasn't just that he was disabled. It was also like, it meant the loss of his life as he knew it. And he had to figure out how to live with a whole new world. Um, with this one, I thought it was a good movie about like a good, teenage movie about dealing with your family in kind of like a way you see traditionally except for there's the component of being a coda yeah so i was really upset with sound of metal not because i thought it wasn't a good movie and i did think it did some really good things with deaf representation but i Historically, one way to win an Oscar is for an abled actor to crip up is what it's called and play a disabled character. And for some reason, well, I know what the reason is, but for some reason, the Academy eats that up. I like Riz Ahmed a lot. We're going to be talking about him next week as well. But he does that in Sound of Metal because he is a hearing person playing a deaf character. And what The reason why that's important is because Hollywood has not been a hospitable place for deaf or disabled actors. And to actually see this movie employ actual deaf actors like Troy Coster, like Marley Matlin, to play these roles, I think is a huge step up, not only in representation, but just employment, right? Being able to like actually pay actors to represent their lives instead of paying someone who does not have that experience. So I liked Sound of Metal, but I I and other people, I think, had a real problem with Riz Ahmed playing that character because the response was, well, he's hearing, and so he, he, ha- he can pretend to be deaf. And my response is, well, can't a deaf actor pretend to be hearing? Isn't that just acting? So yeah, it, that was my main problem with Sound of Metal, but I liked this movie a lot more. Yeah, and I mean, the, the reason I asked the question is, I mean, it is a representational issue. You shouldn't, that shouldn't be a question anybody asks because it's like, oh, the two deaf movies, right? Right, yeah. But that is, we still tokenize them in that way. And so um, I really appreciated the way you contextualized that, Jack. I definitely agree with what you were saying, Tessa. The one thing I would just say is with, the, I would, for me, part of it was that it wasn't like he was deaf the whole time. It's a character that like goes from hearing to non-hearing in the context of the story. First, so... It's not obviously preferred someone who is already differently abled, but I, for me, that I was appreciated that it was telling the story of that transition versus already in one place. 
And it did have deaf actors yeah. in it. Like the actors, the people that he goes to, um, to sort of help with his transition, learn sign yeah. language and so on, they are deaf. And so it's not a movie that completely rejects deaf actors. I just, that was my main problem with it. Yeah. Megan, what were your thoughts? Well, I uh, had a very similar experience to Jack. I also saw Coda at Sundance last year. It was also my favorite of the festival. It's it's just funny because I understand that I should be on a podcast and be able to say, okay, yes, this is like kind of a predictable story of like, you know, a teen girl clashing with her family and wanting to kind of leave her hometown. Like, I mean, it's a little universal, <laughs> but at the same and then, you know, she's at <laughs> the audition and you're like, oh, she's going to see her family and spoilers, you know, uh, sign along with her singing. But so I found a lot of that predictable, but I also just found it so delightful and enjoyable that, that you know, I, this is, you know, much higher on my list than something like Belfast, um, which I found predictable and uh, just kind of like, okay, you know, a, a little boring. This I found predictable and comforting. <laughs> is this the anti-Darkest Hour? <laughs> Completely predictable, but just so it's gosh just darn nice. <laughs> You want to watch it. Because that's the thing. I mean, I I think that's what's really interesting about Coda is that other than you know, the the representation, which is really a great thing. As you said, as far as a, a story, it is completely predictable, beat mm -hmm. by beat. But it was enjoyable. It was good. And people are so good at making movies that don't do that. It's refreshing because it doesn't have to be groundbreaking or anything like that. It can yeah. just be a and good And even, movie, you know, right? I mean, like you said, taking the representation part out of it, I just love that, like, this movie could be made basically the exact same way with and, and everyone in the film being hearing and someone being like, well, I don't understand why you're following your passion. We have a family business and there's X issues with the family business because of, you know, overfishing instead. Like, it could have been anything. And, you know, I think, you know, it just seemed so, so like, that's such a nice little small story. Uh, you know, I... I think, you know, we talked about Troy Kotzer a lot as uh, I think he's kind of hopefully locked to win because he I think he's so excellent. And that scene with him and uh, his uh, Ruby on the on the back of the truck is my favorite. Uh, but, you know, I'm I'm interested to see how it does, because I could I could see this being a lot of people's, you know, number two choice. Maybe not everyone's number one choice. Right. Uh, because, you know, maybe art house people lean drive my car and, you know, uh, big production people lean Dune or whatever. But I could see, I can't see anyone putting this last, you know? I don't think that having predictable plot points is necessarily like a bad thing when you do it with yeah. so Tessa, much sincerity. I was going to say, we and read romance yeah. novels. You're not going to hear us complaining about predictability. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So. I, I think it's interesting that we've all four of us have had very similar takes about the first two movies. I wonder if movie number three <laughs> is going to be the one where we start to see some divergence throughout uh, our discussion today. I, I see three movies on this list that fall into some very predictable patterns as in the Academy does things and you don't know which one it's going to do in any given year, but I would like to call this next movie the annual Green Book a nomination. This next one is Don't Look Up. What do you do when the world is ending and no one cares? 
You watch a movie about what happens when the world is ending and no one cares. Featuring an all-star cast, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, Jonah Hill, Timothy Chalamet, Tyler Perry, Ron Perlman, and Ariana Grande, all of whom are nominated for absolutely nothing. This is nominated for Best Picture. Adam McKay and David Sirota are nominated for Original Screenplay. Also, there are nominations for Film Editing and Original Score. Megan, is this one of the movies you didn't like by any chance? This is my bottom. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I hate to be predictable, Sam. You know that. But (laughs) But, but, but Um, why? I... And I don't even like I, I find a lot of people like who don't like don't look up are like, I'm just kind of sick of this Adam McKay thing. You know, like he had like the big short and he's just been pushing his luck since then. That's less for me, I think. And it might be purely that I'm like, I thought this was incredibly on the nose. Sam, you mentioned like, what would it be like if the world was ending and no one understood? Wouldn't that be frustrating? Yeah, it is. <laughs> I don't need, you know, uh, Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio in <laughs> in a strange wig to tell me that. Um, I think the lack of <laughs> nominations, I mean, it's it's such a wide ensemble cast, but it's not like they've been getting a lot of ensemble attention. I mean, basically the big attention this movie's been getting is about the discourse, and I just find that so much more uninteresting <laughs> than the movie itself i guess (laughs) jack did you feel any more positively toward this movie than megan does maybe slightly (laughs) but probably not it's definitely my voice of the nominations (laughs) i think the best thing about this movie is the meryl streep performance just because it's so different than her (laughs) and i thought considering how adam mckay works in terms of shooting a lot and doing a lot of alternative takes i feel like for an actress of her reputation i think she did a really good job with the material and i'm sure they were doing a lot of improvising like to kind of keep up with jonah hill in that like in the kind of stuff he was doing i would say that meryl streep is definitely the best part of this movie and not much else i never got on the mark violence character's wavelength despite what a lot of other people seemed to think he was the best part of the movie. It just did not work for me like it is working for other people. There's also, and I, this might just be a me issue, but it's uh, the plot line is very similar to that of a movie that I adore, <laughs> Melancholia, which definitely has issues. But um, listen, I'm not proud, <sighs> Sam. Don't look at me like that. Uh, <laughs> no, I, 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 as it, no, we laugh at that because that's me. <laughs> Like, if 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 ever and and many uh many uh, I I have there are certainly more famous trans women than me who who want to be Kirsten Dunst, but that's me. Mm-hmm. That's who I am. I'm that character. We we so. reference melancholia a lot in <laughs> it, this house. It goes on, yeah. But I my problem with the film was that what like like both of you said it kind of hits the same point over and over and over again without any kind of nuance or variation to it which is fine like he's right obviously but there's not a lot of discussion about how like things like race and class play into ecological disaster right or avoidable catastrophe 
just at the very end are like, okay, well, we're all going to go off and, you know, populate, uh, you know, a new planet, basically. But then that ends up just kind of being a gag. I mean, it's tough for me. <laughs> I love how he made a typical Adam McKay movie and then went full Mars Attacks at the very and end. And I love <laughs> Mars like Attacks. Was... So... <laughs> hey... Two out of your three branches of government are still going, and that ain't bad. So I will say the standout performance for me was actually Kate Blanchett's really wonderful impression of Mika from The Morning Joe. <laughs> like, that that's what that show that she was on is, and I think that she actually did a really... Like, if you watched... If you've ever seen Mika and Joe interact on that show... Like that is her performance is like spot on that person. And so I actually really thought found that incredibly funny. But it's Kate Blanchett. Like she's gonna do good work no matter what she's in. So there were a lot of really funny performances, but it didn't really add up to a good movie. Right. I don't think. And this movie, like the Oscar run of this movie didn't annoy me to the and until we have like Adam McKay on Twitter being like if you don't like don't look up I guess you're a climate change denier and I was like okay like no I just <laughs> thought you were a little heavy-handed my guy uh so uh yeah uh, there's always one. This, <laughs> I think that there's a really good chance this wins though like which is so depressing because it's like the political pick, right? It's the, oh, yeah, we think this is important because we're Hollywood and we care about these things. Yeah. Ugh. It's like Green Book. Yeah. There again. always has to be one villain, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I I just really hope it doesn't win. Oh, I don't either. <laughs> are, you, are we ready? Yes. Okay. Listen. I dislike Adam McKay as much as the rest of you do. I really like this movie. <laughs> I'm not I'm not proud. This, I mean, Adam McKay is really doing his best Aaron Sorkin impression, mm. right? Just being, you know, this is this is like the West Wing. This is this to go back to that. That's what this is, and and so I think this might play well with, you know, Tessa invoked the Generation X of it all earlier. I think this may play well better. With with us because of the um, just complete lack of irony, it's it's either all or nothing, right? You have to be so ironic you're dead, or there can be no single trace of irony anywhere. Completely hard on your sleeve idea. But if you're gonna do that, why not? I mean, this is basically like Greta Thunberg. This is this is Generation X Greta Thunberg. Like I am going to get your face and scream at you (laughs) about how much of an idiot you are, and I will stop once you stop being an idiot. And I, I really would like to see more of that energy manifested. And so I hate that it's Adam McKay. I hate that he's doing this, but at the same time, I mean, I, I, and I hold it like it is. I I, mean, (laughs) I have a few things to say, and probably I'm spoiled because, you know, I have, I don't speak to anyone who disagrees with me on climate change or anything like that. So (laughs) I recognize where I'm coming from. But I mean, I think I understand that he's like, oh, like, but it seems like he's less yelling at us about like the dangers of climate change because, like, I mean, I, I, it's a meteor. It's not like the, it's not like, you know, the world is ending because of 
climate change directly. You know, this is like, oh, I guess meteors could just come and fly out of the sky at any point. Uh, and then, I mean, the other thing I wanted to say is uh, you you saying this is his Aaron Sorkin impression, and maybe I'm just tired of Aaron Sorkin too. <laughs> It's quite possible. That's fair. It is quite possible. And we'll talk about that uh, if we, we talk, talk about, about that next being week. your guy. Yeah. <laughs> Very fair. I just want to say that, you know, the thing about this is, is I thought this was a good movie. I think it should be considered for best picture about as much as Anchorman. Right. Well, and that's, I mean, I, I, uh, well... No, Anchorman's better than this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wow. Kidding, I'm, just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, I understand where you're coming from. And it's definitely one of those movies that if it wasn't about something quote unquote important, right, Tessa, then it wouldn't be in the conversation. Which is also right. just as a fan of comedy annoys me because I'm like, we should be allowed to have comedy just to laugh. Things don't always need to be important. <laughs> now, I will Absolutely. say <laughs> if they handed out a most improved Oscar, like if this was like summer camp or something, the most improved Oscar. Beep. I want to I want Vice. to take celluloid. Vice. Vice. You're thinking of the show. I keep yeah. doing this. Vice. <laughs> I want to get a celluloid copy, throw it in a trash can, and set it on fire. I hated that movie. He did much better. Yeah, I didn't like this. Is much better. <laughs> but but I it's yeah, that's like saying, okay, well, it's because you're first a super time... Dick Cheney fan, aren't you, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Famed for it. Famed for it. Wow, Jack came in with the 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 Andy Award for Best Burn of Me this week. <laughs> I'm just Congratulations. saying this is this is my Adam McKay vice take. If I go to a restaurant and you, you serve me something uh, that is completely inedible and then the next time you go, you serve me buttered noodles, you don't deserve a Michelin star for that. So just because this doesn't <laughs> suck doesn't mean it should win best picture. <laughs> Academy, put this person in your role. I don't know. I, I don't know. You you gotta you gotta you gotta add you gotta add Megan. She'll <laughs> she'll have her her Twitter information at the end of the app. Let's let's make sure you invite her in. I don't think I don't, one person I don't know will what make a she wants. You you let her have what she wants. Well, I will say I, I will say we'll talk more about this down the line. But uh, don't look up is allowed to win one Oscar for Nicholas Bertel because I love him and the score was good. Okay. All right. <laughs> but if this is the score that wins him an Oscar, I will be pissed. I will also be pissed. But I guess Succession can't win an Oscar, so please, you're hurting me. <laughs> it's Academy <laughs> Award time. We're not talking about Succession today. <laughs> it had to come up at least once. Yeah, this is this a conversation is, between I, you and Megan. I don't think I've ever been on a podcast with Sam and Succession. Oscars. I'm sorry. As if the Academy isn't well known for giving people what is colloquially known as the makeup Oscar. Not for costume and makeup, but making up for sins of the past. So, I don't know. Maybe. All right. Next up, we have Drive My Car. Based on a short story by future Nobel Prize winner Haruki Murakami, Drive My Car wins the award for longest prologue at 42 minutes. It's an episode of television before the title card. Y'all. I was going to say, are we watching Madam Secretary? Okay. Yeah, not the title card. <laughs> Only the one credits, person yeah. in our audience gets that joke. Right. 
This film documents the relationship between an acclaimed stage actor and the love of his life, a classic Red Sob 900 with turbo and a tape deck. It feels like you're actually introducing us to a Fast and Furious movie. Yeah, so Dom Toretto, (laughs) who directed this movie. Very different The only thing that could make this movie better. (laughs) So, uh, uh, Yusuke Hamaguchi is nominated for Best Director. Uh, This film is also nominated. It is the Parasite of the Year, nominated for International Feature Film as well. Also nominated for adapted screenplay uh, by uh, Ryusuke Hamaguchi and Takamasa Oe. Ah, Jack, drive my car. How did we feel about it? I loved it. It was my number two movie of last year. It was, I think, maybe the last or second to last, one of the last movies I saw of the year. And I was, I kind of knew, all I knew was that it was based off a short story. And but it was set in Japan, and that's all I knew going into it, and I was blown away with it. It's one I've been thinking about ever since I've seen it. And if I know, like when I know people who can handle a three-hour movie, I recommend it. Not everyone, I surprisingly enough, I don't surround myself with people who can always handle three-hour movies. But um, <laughs> I think people who can watch the who watch the movie will be very happy they did. So I've been definitely been high and screaming about it. And I don't think it will win Best Picture, but I'd love to see it. So you said you've been thinking about it pretty much since you saw it the first time. There is clearly a lot going on in this movie. It, it does manage to take its time in terms of pace, but also throw a lot of things at you. What is it or what is it primarily that's sticking with you? I think it is the story of grief uh, throughout the through several different characters and how they uh, deal with grief and also try to find also the story of connection. I thought um, one interesting thing about because um, he's like trying to reconnect. Basically, he's trying to reconnect with the world through being a director by the person who's driving him around in his car. And then also shown through the play adaptation he's doing where every star of it speaks a different language, which I can only imagine what that would be like to see in person. Um, It'd be very fascinating. I'd totally be down to see it. Um, But I just thought it was like they talk about how like you may not understand people and but they always are connecting, even though they don't always understand what they're saying to each other. It reminds me of the old Italian spaghetti Western films, how they would get actors from different countries and they would all just speak in their native language in the film. I I found that to be really fascinating as well. Megan, what did you think? Yeah, I love Drive My Car. I agree with Jack on so many things. You know, uh, I know it's going to take a lot of hits for being three hours. Uh, this, this is my plea for everyone. I'm like, if you saw Batman, this is the new Batman. This is only three minutes longer than the new Batman. <laughs> uh, and you don't have to say through the credits. Uh, there's so, no post credit uh, scene i mean i know that's no a huge post-credit. spoiler but no post credit scene <laughs> uh you can just uh and i just find it so hypnotic and i know um you know people are like oh like that is a long time commitment but i think it works so well in kind of putting you in the feel of the movie and um you know kind of 
making the audience really sit with what the uh, protagonist is sitting with. Um, I think, you know, looking more at the Oscar side of it, like Jack said, I picture this being more of a Roma than a Parasite where it could win director, but maybe not best picture. But I, I really loved it. And I could see I could see it being popular uh, with Oscar voters once you watch it because, um, you know, actors love Chekhov. So uh, <laughs> that's a big part of this. <laughs> <laughs> so I just have a couple of things to say this because I agree with both you and Jack, Megan, about this particular film It is very good. It is just so beautifully done. I like the idea of this being about grief, but I also think that it's about the idea that people are complicated and we have to survive what they do to us. And, Mm -hmm. but in like an empathetic way, like this movie is very empathetic in that message. And I, I really appreciate that because that's just not a message I think I'd ever actually seen before in a film. I like it when a film can cause me to think about something I haven't thought about before or think about something I have thought about before, but in a new way. So I I really appreciated that. Like you said, also, Megan, it is a film about acting, which I can be a little hit or miss on, especially when it comes to award season, because as we know... Hollywood really likes to make movies about itself, right? Like it likes to get all the way up its own butt and talk about movies about filmmaking or making art. However, when they're done right, when you have a movie that can be about art that actually makes you excited in the art that's being made on the screen, that makes you excited about art in general. Like I wanted to go to a theater production after watching this. Like I was like, oh Mm -hmm. yeah, theater. Haven't been to, you know, haven't done that for a while, you know? (laughs) So it's, I, I really appreciate that. I do have a question for you, though, Sam. You have a question about for this movie. Me. So you mentioned Murakami. <laughs> this is based on a Murakami short story. I know you really want him to win a Nobel Prize. We're going to skip right over that comment. If Bob Dylan can win, anything is possible. So I was curious because I have not read a lot of Murakami and I have not read the story that this is based on. How much of this film do you think has the Murakami DNA? And how much of it has the director Hamaguchi's DNA? Like, where? So I'm always I, interested in this when it comes to a famous writer that's whose work is being adapted. So I, sadly, I haven't read uh, the story. The collection that it's from is one of his newest works, um, and I'm a little bit behind. So. Um, what I can tell you is, is I feel certain that the short story has about five more things that aren't <laughs> in the movie, and the movie has five things that aren't in the story. You know, you you asked me, you kept asking, where's the magical realism? And then at the very end of the movie, they were revealed that the, the mother had All, an alternate personality, an alternate personality yeah. something like that. I was like, there it is. And, and of course, that's, I, I, I kind of expected you to kind of look at me and go, how's that magical realism? I'm like, it just is. Like, whatever was lost in the adaptation translation there was was probably that. Um, I think that a couple of things that I would point out that are very Murakami is the setting of the film in uh, Hiroshima, which, you know, is a city that is built on grief, literally. Um, you know, you asked me about it and I said, well, you know, the town square, uh, one of the buildings in the town center was kept and then they built the, um, 
the museum next to it, but then they built up. It's a modern city, and there's that one reference in the film about the sight line, you know, to the to the water. And uh, Murakami loves to talk about Hokkaido, which is where I lived, you know, the Northern Island. And and I love that shot at the end of just the bleak winter with all the tunnels and the twisty roads. I'm like, yep, that's where I live. That's why I don't want to live anywhere cold anymore. <laughs> um, the the city, the small town that uh, the driver is from, that is not a real town. Uh, Junitaki is not real. It is a callback to a town that is mentioned in A Wild Sheep Chase, which was his first novel translated into English. So it's the Murakami-verse. Uh, the Murakami-verse. Tons I of like great that. stuff for people who <laughs> uh, love the author like I do, but I don't think you needed that at all, it sounds like, to right. enjoy it. Uh, what I know about Murakami is that he likes jazz, which there's some jazz in this. A little bit. A little, little bit, bit more classical than jazz. He yeah. likes, and there was classical, a lot of classical music in this too. He likes running, which we don't see as much in this movie. We see it in a different movie we're going to talk about later. Uh, what was the other? And magical realism. Like usually there's like a talking cat or something in his films. And then you said if somebody cooks with beer. If he cooks for himself and puts beer in it, we have bingo. Yeah. So, so those are some <laughs> motifs. I didn't see all of them, but I did see some of them in, in this as well. I also just want to shout out to Yoram Park, who plays a Korean actress who is mute and uses sign language, and she's cast in a role in the in the Chekhov play. She is not, as far as I can tell, actually mute, so that does bring up questions of cripping up again, but I do think it's interesting that we had two movies that were nominated this year that have sign language speakers in them, so expanding the idea of what language is and what performance can be, and she's excellent in it like she dominates every scene that she's in i wish that she was nominated for acting uh supporting actress in this yeah and i find i mean you know i i find this to always be an issue with the acting nominations is it, do, it seems like they never extend to the international features as much but and sam i am interested in uh you might have to watch Jack and I have talked about the other Hamaguchi movie from last year, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, oh, wow. so that you can yeah. see, um, you know, basically that I think is probably more, you know, pure Hamaguchi without the York, <laughs> uh, the influence. So I uh, want to know your opinions on those as well. Sam, I know you talked about the or the focused on the setting of Hiroshima. This movie actually was supposed to be set in Korea. But due to COVID restrictions, they adjusted it to the story to Hiroshima. That's interesting. I think it's interesting that they reference COVID at the end. I, I mean, and not in an intrusive way to the story. It's just they are clearly living during a pandemic and everyone's living wearing masks in that last scene. Right, and it's very unclear what's happening. Right. It, they don't explain it. It's just kind of there. And I, I appreciate that. I wish more movies would reference it without like necessarily dwelling on it. Like I don't want to watch a COVID movie. I lived that. I don't need it. But it, it is interesting when movies will just be like, yeah, and then this happened. Like Kimmy, which I haven't right. seen apparently also does something very similar. So yeah. yeah. And I think it's one of those things where it's like, you know, it's it's 2022 when we're watching this. If you see a scene where everyone's wearing masks, that's enough uh, to tell the audience <laughs> what that means without needing to sit with it. Right. Exactly. Yeah, Jack, that's really interesting to know. Um, one of the other things that I really liked about the film is that they have him on a small island 
you know, about an hour out of the town proper. And so I had to look it up because um, if you go due south of Hiroshima, you'll run into the next big island, not the island he's staying on, but the next big island is uh, Shikoku, which I've always heard that this area, once you go south off of Honshu, which is where, you know, uh, Hiroshima is kind of on the southern border, that's the most picturesque, most beautiful part of the country. And I really want to go there. I will and, say the hotel he stays in, I want to stay yeah, at that hotel. So it is just, just like, kind of gorgeous. Yeah, the view from there it was great. And it was like, you know, normally when I watch a Japanese film, it's fun because it's one of those things where you know the language well enough to catch the subtitle changes. And that's always fun. But like being able to kind of look at the landscapes and and recognize them or have those attachments to them, it was it was really great. And, you know, I always wonder, you know, how well does anyone else feel about this but it i i hope it wins best international feature i really do yeah i will also say as someone who hasn't been to japan it was refreshing to see a japanese movie that wasn't set in tokyo and wasn't intentionally like cued it up for a western audience because usually movies that are set in japan have this very like Tokyo is high tech and everybody's super cute and everybody's obsessed with cartoons and anime and like, which I mean, I'm sure is a part of Tokyo culture, but it is really interesting to see like a different, a different setting and a different take, different side of this culture. Well, if you listen to our James Bond mini series, or if you know us at all, you know that we had way too much fun to contain this conversation to a single episode. So come back on Wednesday when we'll talk about the other six Best Picture nominees. In the meantime, you can find Jack on Twitter at JackTweetsLife and on Letterboxd at JackLovesMovies. You can find Megan everywhere online at Spell Megan. You can find Tessa on Twitter at Swayla Tessa and me at Sam underscore Morris 9. Send us all of your Academy Award thoughts. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Monkey Backlog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.